0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead now to God's Word. We continue in the book of Titus, this wonderful little epistle. Uh, we are going to look at verses 10 through 16 today. Wow, that's a big chunk in light of the fact that we've been just kind of going one verse at a time. and We slowed down on those qualifications of a godly elder, pastor, bishop, overseer. Because there were like 20 qualifications we looked at, and they're all very specific. They matter. They make a difference. We're actually supposed to look at those and scrutinize the men that God raises up in light of those very specific qualifications. That's why we went slow. And now we're going to pick up the pace a little bit, looking at 10 through 16, because it is one main thought that goes together on the heels of what a qualified elder or pastor looks like in a local church. Um, So the passage we're looking at today, follow along as I read Titus chapter 1, 10 uh, through 16, right on the heels of all these qualifications needed for a pastor in the local church. Verse 10 says, 4, and that actually connects this verse with everything that just came. It all goes together. There's a continuous theme of thought here. Ordain and raise up godly elders in the local church for or because, verse 10, there are many, many rebellious men. Many empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. This is the Apostle Paul. And you just read that and go, wow, that is some really strong language that Paul is using here. Is, Is that Christian to do that and use that kind of terminology, Paul? Is that really loving? They are detestable, worthless for any good deed. They must be silenced, literally shut their mouths. Um, yeah, this is appropriate because of the context. And the Apostle Paul was speaking as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So this is totally appropriate. This is what needed to be heard in light of the circumstance, who these people were, the damage they were doing, how they were hurting the precious church, the body of Christ. So it is a severe call to action, and Paul is charging young Titus that he needs to take care of business here on this island of Crete, sitting in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And he has a job to do. I put there at the top of your notes, Satan attacks the church. By the way, Satan is always attacking the church. He never stops. He never sleeps, as far as we know, or slumbers. He is vicious. He is wicked inherently to the core like a vicious lion seeking someone to destroy. He's the destroyer. Satan's always on the attack. Satan attacks the church. That's been true for 2,000 years. Satan, who's a supernatural powerful being, is attacking the church wherever it exists. And believers, wherever they are, but he's attacking the church collectively and always has been. Jesus told us and warned us that he would. Peter warned us that he would. Paul warned us that he would. Satan attacks the church. Satan is attacking Grace Bible Fellowship, by the way, the church here. Satan began to attack Grace Bible Fellowship even before it began to exist when a small huddle of people got together and said, maybe the Lord's going to start a church. And then Satan turned his attention there, attack, and has been attacking Grace Bible Fellowship for six-plus years now. And newsflash, as long as GBF exists, Satan will continue to attack this church, Um, whether it's the next six years or 60 years what he does. Satan attacks uh, the church. And he's not very creative, by the way. So that's bad news and good news. Uh, The good news is, is we know how he attacks. It's manifest really primarily in three ways in your local church. We know this from church history, but primarily from Scripture. We can actually figure out what his tactics are. His mode. He attacks the church through creating division. He attacks the church through immorality. And he attacks the church with heresy or false teaching. And the Apostle Paul, the apostle of the churches, church planter par excellence, church planter like no other, every church that Paul planted and pastored was attacked by Satan on those three fronts with heresy, false teaching, immorality, and division. And Paul wrote 13 epistles. told you this already. And every one of the 13 epistles that he wrote to the churches was corrective. There was something wrong. There was a problem he was addressing. And it was either a problem of division among Christians in the church, uh, immorality going on in the church, or false teaching in the church. And many times actually all three were interrelated and manifest in that local church. So there shouldn't be a surprise if we have an attack or issues in an ongoing manner at Grace Bible Fellowship Relative to division, immorality, and false teaching. That's just a promise. That's just reality. And this was also true in these among these churches here that Titus had to deal with. Uh, on the island of Crete, we've already talked about this, where maybe at Pentecost, some Jews who lived on the island of Crete were able to go to Pentecost. We know that from Acts two. Heard the gospel, the fullness about who Jesus Christ was, went back to the island of Crete very well may have started house churches there on the island of Crete. And so you've got believers. uh, Many of them are Jewish professing believers on the island of Crete. Now, they've been there for 20, 30 years now. And then finally, at the end of Paul's ministry in the 60s, he gets to visit the island of Crete. He spends a considerable amount of time there with Titus to check out the churches to see how the Christians are doing. That was his first major Stay there, and Paul's assessment was, wow, Houston, we have a problem. The grace of God and the gospel has reached this pagan island. By the way, it's kind of interesting, the history of the island of Crete, that's where the Philistines came from. Uh, so it was a pagan island and colony till the Jews came over and then Christians came over. But it's a mixed bag, and so when Paul gets there with Titus, he realizes, wow, I don't have time to correct all the problems, and the problems are monumental. They are huge. And so, Titus, you the man. And this is an incredibly daunting task for one man, Titus, to deal with all this plurality of churches that are in disarray, they are compromised. Um, and But God had prepared Titus for this task. I don't know if Timothy could have handled this, because we know from Timothy, a little timid, and he just had a different personality. Titus went through the ringer on behalf of the Apostle Paul, especially in the churches of Corinth, for decades and did an exemplary job on behalf of Paul, of dealing with division and critics and people who hated Paul. And after an extended period of time, as Paul's representative, Titus was able to bring amazing supernatural peace to some of the churches in Corinth. And so after proving himself of just an amazing man of God with the right temperament, the right gifts that were very unique, Paul determined, Titus, uh, you are chosen by God uh, for this, like I said, daunting task to deal with this influence of really false teachers who have crept into the churches and among the believers on the island of Crete and are creating all kinds of problems. So uh, that's where verse 10 picks up. Uh, so the urgency here in this letter, and that's why Paul starts out by saying we need to begin with the foundation. We need some qualified leadership put in place. And there's kind of a quasi-leadership But it's all messed up and it's compromised. So we need to supplant the leadership that's in place in these churches, supplant it with biblical leadership, and you need to pray that God would raise up and identify godly pastors, bishops, elders. Here are their qualifications. The emphasis, again, is on godly character. Godly character. Not if they're influential businessmen in the community, uh, a CEO of a company, uh, an eloquent speaker an expert in rhetoric. It had to do with their character, their spiritual character. And there was one task they had to manifest giftedness at, and that was wielding the Word of God. And so look for these men, Titus, and begin identifying these men, ordaining these men, and have them supplant the false teachers. And also at the same time, you've got to silence the false teachers. Huge task. And to summarize verses 10 through 16, because that's what 10, 10 through 16 is all about, let's go ahead and look at it. I just... Uh, came up with three points for consideration in light of Titus's calling of what he's got to do in this church situation. As I was reading this passage this week, praying through it, meditating on it, I was thinking, well, I've candidated at a few churches over the years, and I've been a partner to other pastors who have candidated at churches, and even recently, there will be, on a pretty regular basis, some young pastor at Cornerstone Seminary who's considering a church. He's candidating there. Then I'll get a phone call or an email. They want to meet for lunch or whatever, and they want to bounce it off me. Here's this church. I'm candidating. Pastor Cliff, do you think I should take it? And uh, I've been in the same situation where I've gone to a church, candidated, looked at it. You look at the leadership. You look what's its existence. Then you start asking, probing, penetrating very important questions. Like, for example, the church that wants to hire you and you ask them, is it really true that you've had five senior pastors in seven years? That's kind of important. Why why is that? Why are all these pastors coming and going and leaving? That's kind of scary. Can you explain that to me? Uh, that has happened before. So those are the kind of things that you want to ask. So I, the last thing... Or One of the biggest challenges and the the last thing you want to do sometimes as a pastor, young pastor, seasoned pastor is run into a church, sign on the dotted line and say, okay, I'm ready to be hired by you if that church is just filled with problems and a history. It just reeks with problems and division and uh, overturning of leadership and uh, infighting in the church. That's kind of a scary scenario. And I've been confronted with options like that. Here, we want you to come be our pastor. And I said, uh, you know, red light, Proceed with caution. Uh, uh, uh. No, thank you. Because it's just too scary. Too many trials. It's. I don't think anybody could fix it. I can't fix it. And then I'm thinking about Titus, his job. He wasn't just walking into one church. He was probably walking into several churches spread abroad on this island. And he's got false teachers they are influential. They've got wrong motives. They, uh, rule with a strong arm over their little factions. They've got the wrong motives. They're immoral. They're arrogant. They're powerful. They hold a lot of sway. They're in multiple locations. And Titus has to go in and confront all of that. It's like, wow! I don't, I could never do that. I gained a new appreciation of Titus this week. I want to meet Titus in heaven and talk to him and see what kind of man of God he was in the scenario that he was confronted with. It's just, to me, it's unthinkable um, that he would have this calling. But God knew he was suited to pull it off supernaturally through the power of the Spirit, the truth of the Word of God. And Titus, and all of his training over the years, was meant for this amazing challenge. So let's go ahead and look at these three points here in light of Titus's incredible calling and duty to go and try to set these churches right. Uh, point number one, and that's verses 10 through 12 in light of the problems that he was confronted with, uh, when churches are compromised, Christians and especially the leadership needs to note the character of the false teachers. Note the character of false teachers if they are in the church. Identify them. Find out what they're teaching. Expose it. And in the case of Titus here, what he was dealing with is the character of false teachers who were rebellious deceivers. They were deceivers. So let's go ahead and look at that. Verses 10 through 12. Uh, Titus, raise up godly qualified elders with all these characteristics because I'm sending you to the churches at Crete, or actually I'm asking you to remain on here in all these compromised Christian satellite locations for there are many rebellious men. See, many. That's the key word that just threw me for a loop. Wow, Many. They were, they were like termites, roaches, just this infestation. Not just one guy with an attitude that you can identify. There were many. This is like cancer run amok. There are many rebellious men here on the island of Crete who are professing Christians who have crept in, and you got to deal with them, Titus. For there are many rebellious men empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting or literally overturning entire families and households teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. So I want to look at the character of identifying false teachers. You know, sometimes it's hard to identify a false teacher Sometimes it is truly difficult. Maybe you're watching somebody on television. You hear them on the radio. You see one of their books in the Christian bookstore, and you're you're listening. It's like, well, wow, he sounds like a Christian. He's he's got the Bible open. He's actually talking about Bible verses occasionally. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about God's love. He's talking about salvation and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And so I understand it is difficult uh, to identify, but you actually have to go deeper and begin looking at other attributes. And so that's what Paul's trying to do here. He's being very specific uh, to let Titus know exactly who to look for that they might be silenced and exposed. And here's some of their characteristic features. So let's go ahead and look at those. Um, first of all, they are rebellious. They are rebellious. It means in, insubordinate. In other words, these people, these, I guess, self-proclaimed Bible teachers, whether they're leading Bible studies or they're doing the Sunday school class, Or they're getting a following on their own somewhere in a corner. First and foremost, in their heart, they are rebellious, which means insubordinate. In other words, they don't like to submit to authority. And the main authorities that they defy is the authority of the local church. Pastoral authority. The other main authority they don't submit to, even though they probably think they do, is biblical authority. True teaching of the Bible. So they defy authority. And that, that's true of false teachers. And commensurate with that attribute of defying authority and being insubordinate, it usually manifests itself in a false teacher or an aberrational Christian teacher is they're, uh, sometimes self-proclaimed teachers, but many times they're independent operators. They do not like an, a group of accountability. They they will stiff-arm that at every opportunity that they can. And that is exactly what rebellious means, insubordinate. They don't want to be uh, reined in. Independent operators, mavericks, shying away from authority and accountability. And that's what these guys were. And by the way, the characteristics and attributes of these false teachers is in Absolute, parallel, total contrast of all the qualifications that Paul just laid out regarding a godly elder. So what is the opposite of insubordinate is self-willed. In other words, these these men, they are are self-willed. They don't want to submit to authority. So that will always be true of a false teacher, ultimately, and you've got to look for that. Sometimes you've got to scratch past the surface to find it. Because many times they're very good at shielding their true character and their true, especially their personal life, which is compromised. Uh, not only are they rebellious, Paul goes on, another characteristic about them is they're empty talkers. Empty talkers, futile talkers. Uh, this word has to do with being actually eloquent speakers on the surface, but bereft of content. They're all fluff. They're persuasive with their words. But there's no biblical truth in the packaging. And it fools a lot of people because a lot of people are just listening not as carefully on the surface. That's why they're so deceptive. Empty talkers, uh, deceitful talkers, smooth talkers, slick talkers, leading people astray primarily by their silver forked tongue false teachers. So they are rebellious, don't like authority, smooth talkers. After all, that's their profession. They're called teachers, right? So most of what they do is speaking. They've got the gift of gab. Not only that, are they insubordinate, smooth talkers without any content. It says they are deceivers. Verse 10, deceivers. This is an interesting Greek word because it means they're deceivers of the mind. They're deceivers of the mind. In other words, they're deceiving people's thinking. Because there are different kinds of deceivers. There are deceivers that specialize in deceiving people's eyes, like magicians and illusionists, where you're depending upon your vision. These are deceivers of the mind. So they're going after your mind, what you think. See, they want to influence your thinking. And the most precious commodity that you have, I believe as a Christian, is your mind and what you think. You've got to protect your mind. Whatsoever is true. Meditate on these things. Don't depend upon your emotions. Don't let your emotions uh, sway your thinking. Think on truth. Meditate on truth. And these false teachers and why they're so effective, they know where to attack. They attack with boy. If I can just get their mind, if I can just get their thinking. That's true of false teachers. Adolf Hitler knew that secret, by the way. If I can just get the mind of the youth while they're young and brainwash them. Literally, that was one of his strategies. Very successful at it. Very dangerous. So they're deceivers of the mind. One question that comes up a lot of times with a so-called false teacher or heretic among Christians is he's deceiving people and his teaching is deceiving people and leading people astray. But do you think that he knows he's deceiving people? And I always say, I don't know. But that's a great question. Would Would someone intentionally deceive somebody else and millions of people? with biblical truth and compromising it and probably many times the case is that that false teacher himself is he is self-deceived and that's why he can believe in it so passionately and that's why he is so convincing he or she so they're probably not thinking most of the time oh i'm going to see how i can deceive them they probably think what they're saying is true they are self-deceived they are blinded because if they're a false teacher and they're not a believer then they're not born again anyway. They are blinded by Satan. They're blinded by their own sin. They're walking in the dark. Their mind is obtuse anyway. So they're probably self-deceived. And they don't even realize uh, the consequences of what they're doing many times. Yet they are still culpable. But sometimes they may very well know. We don't know. Only God knows. But I think it's a great question. So see, these are some of the characteristics of a false teacher. Now, the false teachers here on the island of Crete were of a Jewish bent. In other words... Probably, again, Jews that were Pentecost or the gospel, they all came back. Some were born again. Some thought they were born again. Um, and the ones that thought they were born again rose to prominence in position and teaching in the churches. And they were Jewish. So they were professing Jewish Christians who probably grew up in synagogues and were trained in the Old Testament scripture. So they said they believed in scripture. They believed in the Old Testament, had much of it memorized. They were teachers of it. And the ones who were not saved or compromised are these false teachers Paul says here was their bent here's where they're coming from at the end of verse 10 it says they were of the those of the circumcision these are uh, professing jewish christians who were leading people astray and creating all kinds of havoc on the island of crete of a jewish ilk verse 11 they must be silenced remember one of the qualifications in verse nine we talked about of an elder was he needed to have a mastery of the word of god the bible so that he could encourage the believers and silence the false teachers refute verse nine is the word refute uh in verse 11 that's what paul says titus you need to silence these false teachers wow how do you do that you've got a proliferation of all kinds of. it says there's many how do you silence false teachers that are infiltrating churches all over the place Sunday school classes, Bible studies, small groups, discipleship groups, all over the place. How do you silence them? It's an explicit command that Titus needs to do. He says they must be silenced and then he's going to go on in verse 13. Uh, you need to reprove them, refute them, which is part of silencing them. So we're going to talk about that. Point number two, how you silence them. Uh, they must be silenced because the fruit of their ministry is absolutely destructive and undermining the church. And what are they doing? Verse 11. Uh, they must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, whole house, literally they are turning upside down entire families in the local churches. That's what false teaching does. It confuses people. And then some people, some legitimate, born again, Bible believing Christians are drawn to these aberrational heretical teachings, and they actually gravitate to it. And one of the fascinations is they've never heard it before. Oh, this is new. Wow. Oh, this is new and cool truth. Never heard that before. And then they have this loyalty and allegiance to it when in fact it's false teaching and they've let their guard down, and now they're not being discerning, and now all of a sudden there's an attitude of elitism over this false doctrine in the church by true believers, and they think, oh, we've got the truth, the complete truth, and nothing but the truth, and there are other Christians, they don't know this truth, and they need to come along and they need to learn this new hidden truth that nobody's known for 2,000 years, that this specialized teacher somewhere got the truth, isn't that amazing? That's how it works. And by the way, these false teachers, this tells you one of the tactics that deceivers use in the church they're professing christians they were sharp they knew that they couldn't stand up necessarily publicly in big groups and teach this heretical doctrine because then they would be exposed it would be identified and so as a result apparently from verse 11 they were operating in small groups and that's what false teachers do they find small groups they find little divisions they find little factions they kind of test the waters and see what kind of loyalties that they can have with certain groups in the church and then certain personalities gravitate towards these heretical teachers. And then they can brainwash them and gain a following. And what, now what they've done is they've created a faction in the church among the body of Christ. And then it infiltrates and trickles and it upsets, overturns entire families and households in the local church. Boy, we've seen that for 2,000 years. And that's what false teaching will do. So, uh, they're very strategic. They, they like a closed, controlled system. Uh, I'll go teach in that group and at that Bible study with those people. And oh, I hope he isn't there or she isn't there because they're, they question me and they're always asking me what the Bible says. And that's how false teachers operate. A controlled environment. Usually on a smaller scale because then they can get their message across, and when converts, not to Jesus, but unto themselves. That's how it works. This is how the cults work as well. But it should be noted that in, in all this, this false teaching and this immoral behavior, Paul is not talking about false religion. He's not talking about the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the cultists. He's talking about professing Christians in the church, which is even scarier. Because they're using all this Christianese and Christian vocabulary, and that's why they're so hard to identify. Uh, they must be silenced because they're upsetting entire families. And well, what are they doing? Well, they're teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sort of gain. So they're, they're they're teaching the Bible, but they're teaching the Bible the wrong way. They're teaching the Bible, but putting the wrong twist on it. They're teaching the Bible, but pulling it out of context. That's what they're doing, giving it its own meaning. And that's 100% always consistent with false teaching. Usually, it, and that's why it is so hard to identify. That's why it is so dangerous and leads so many people astray, because false teachers, the most effective false teachers use the Bible in their teaching and use biblical and Christian terminology. Boy, when you're a phony, the more like the original you can be, the more effective you will be at deceiving people. And that's what made these guys so effective. Dangerous. But bottom line, they're teaching things they shouldn't be teaching. And they also have wrong motives at the end of verse 11. This is part of their character. Man, somehow they're getting money out of this or profit or free food at people's houses and whatever so they've got the wrong motive doing it for money which is an exact opposite qualification of a godly elder that you can't be doing this for money doing it out of service for christ um, and then paul localizes the situation to make his case in verse 12 with this shocking statement and he said one of themselves well who one of themselves well one of the Cretans themselves so Paul's not. this is not Paul's personal opinion. This was, this was actually a proverb he's about to cite in verse 12 to illustrate how evil and wicked to the core on the inside these false teachers are that call themselves Christians that are actually leading some of your Bible studies here on the island of Crete. If the veil could be pulled away and you could only see the diagnosis of their heart, it is incredibly corrupt. And one of themselves, a Cretan himself, by the way, a well-known Cretan, A recognized Cretan, he's about to quote from. He says in verse 12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own. So uh, Crete has been around a long time, even in the day of Paul. They had their so-called prophets. He was a false prophet, but he was recognized as a prophet, whoever this guy was. Epimedes, in case you were interested, was the guy's name. Epimedes, uh, a Cretan who existed around 600 B.C., who wrote, who was claimed to be a prophet, a divine, a spokesperson of God. Uh, Plato recognized him by name. Aristotle recognized him by name as divine and as a prophet. And he was recognized as such in the history of the island of Crete among the Cretans. And they considered him one of the seven wisest men in the history of the world. Epimedes, 600 B.C. And here's what Epimedes said at one time that it actually became uh, proverbial. Like today, you know, Shakespeare wrote 1600 A.D., And yet there are things that he said that are famous that are Proverbs, and we quote them all the time, and sometimes people don't even know they're quoting Shakespeare. To be or not to be. And that's what this is. This is a proverb that was just a given of what Cretans were like. One of themselves, your very own prophet Epimedes, said of the Cretans, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So that's this categorical national assessment talking about the characteristics that typified these Cretans over there on that isolated island. And it is consistent with the way these false teachers are, because that's how they conduct themselves on a personal level and how they think. They are liars. They misrepresent God's truth. They are evil because they destroy people's souls. Ferocious in keeping with Satan himself. And they are lazy gluttons. They have the wrong motives. It's all pleasure. It's all for money. It's all for gain. It's all for notoriety. And so Paul's saying there's a consistency here. Not only these false teachers, they are Cretan false teachers. And it's consistent with the worst of what we know about this People called the Cretans. So this is not the Apostle Paul being prejudiced and making an illegitimate statement. He is quoting a proverb he didn't make up that their own nation recognized about the weaknesses of that country. And we have that true here in America. There have been plenty of social critics of America in the last 200 years that spoke up honestly. And today they even exist, these social critics of America. Americans penning and saying things like, Americans are self-serving, materialistic, and spoiled. And I would have to say, amen. Generally speaking. And that's what this is. This is just a proverb. And so what Paul's trying to do is open your eyes, be more discerning, and look at the character that typifies these false teachers. They don't represent God. They are evil to the core. As a result, they need to be silenced and supplanted. And that leads us to point number two about these false teachers. Uh, Titus, note the character of these false teachers. They're rebellious deceivers. Also, Titus, heed my command to you about these false teachers. They need to be categorically silenced. Literally, the uh, word there in verse 11, who must be silenced, shut their mouth. Well, how do you do that with false teachers? Shut their mouth. Well, first, you refute their teaching. You take it on, you take it to task, head to head, mano y mano. You confront it, you expose it, you say it's wrong. Here's what you said, here's what the Bible said. That is wrong. That is heresy. So you've got to speak out against it explicitly. And let the people know. Because the people are, Christians are being deceived. And what does a deceived Christian need most? He needs the truth. Because if a Christian knows the truth, then the truth will set you free from deception. That's what Jesus said. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the first thing to do to silence false teachers is to proclaim biblical truth that zeroes in, that is exacting, that confronts head to head their false teaching. So if they're teaching some false doctrine about Christology, then you truth, you teach and preach the truth about true Christology. And you know what it'll do? The false teachers, usually they'll scatter. They will run. They will run from the truth. They will hide in shame. They'll go find a new candidate or a new crowd somewhere else where they can do their deception. So the first thing to silence is actually proclaim the truth. And Paul does hold out hope that, you know, not every heretical thing you hear being heard is a lost case because when you confront that false teacher with his heresy, it could be that God woos him to repentance. Right? And he changes his mind because he hears the truth. He repents of it or he was a, uh, had the wrong intention, had wrong training or whatever else and comes around or it could be that he's not saved after all and he hears the truth and God softens his heart and he actually comes to the truth. That's, you see that in this passage. So speak the truth, confront it head on, first patiently but very clearly and then just see what the fallout is and see what the damage is and also see what the good news might be. See who is a magnet for the truth when it's proclaimed in the middle of this controversy being exposed. That's step number one. And then you kind of let the dust settle and okay, wow. We've got some repentance here. We've got some people, we've got some Christians who are being convicted and have come back to the truth and they realize that they have been duped. And they love the truth. And then there are others running away. And there are others who are hunkering down even more. Defending their false position, these false... Teachers, and so that's why uh, Paul gives an incredible warning. So go on to verse 13. Uh, This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them. Same word used in verse 9 that an elder is supposed to do. One of the main responsibilities of a pastor, elder, preacher, teacher is to reprove, expose, refute false teaching because it is incessant, it is ongoing, it will continue to go. It never stops. We've always got to be in guard. Always, always, always false teaching. And false teaching, it's always the same thing, just repackaged, that's all. I mean, you can, the latest heresy, you can always pretty much diagnose what it's gonna be. Uh, somebody, attacking the deity of Jesus, like we haven't heard that before, uh, works righteousness, undermining the God, I mean, it's always the same. Undermining the authority of the Bible. So it can be simplified pretty clearly, but it just always seems to be repackaged in disguise. And so Paul says his testimony is true. We've gotta deal with these false teachers. We've got to first refute them, reprove them preach the uh, truth publicly to all the believers, expose the error. Uh, then these false teachers, if they don't relent, they need to be silenced, verse 11. And one of the ways you silence a false teacher in the church is you remove them from teaching opportunities and you discipline them. And if they don't uh, comply and repent during the discipline process, you put them out of the church and identify them. That is a false teacher. This man is acting like an unbeliever and we have every reason to believe he's not... A believer he's a false teacher so they need to be reproved and by the way in verse 13 not just reproved it says reprove them severely this is a compound greek word part of the word is to cut we need to cut them off uh, cut to the chase It, it is severe it's like a surgeon with his knife going in and cutting out the cancer and it gets bloody but that's what needs to be done by the way the urgency of this. One of the, the main ministries of the church and the main ministry of a pastor is to preach and teach the Word of God. This spoken ministry. And we speak truth. We're only supposed to speak truth. And that's why in the church there's no such thing as freedom of speech. Do you know that? That's a constitutional right for every American as an American citizen, right? We have freedom of speech. In the church there isn't just unqualified freedom of speech. When we're teaching formally representing God, we can only speak the things that are consistent with God's word or according to the truth, according to the apostles' doctrine, according to verse 9, sound doctrine, healthy doctrine consistent with Jesus, the apostles, the New Testament, the Old Testament. Uh, so it's not anything goes. So that's why they have to be reproved severely. And here's the tint, uh, a tinge of hope, verse 13, so that they may be sound in the faith. So some of them might come around now. Is that the false teachers or the Christians who are following them? Well, I don't know. It's disputed, and it probably includes both. Probably an emphasis on Paul's part is that those Christians who are being deceived by this teaching reprove them as well, expose them to the truth so that they'll come around back to the faith because the false teachers, uh, their characters, revealed in 15 and 16, and they're worthless, rebellious men. So Paul's probably speaking from his pastoral part out of concern for Christians who've actually kind of been misled by this false teaching. Well, what's the nature of their false teaching? Verse 14. These Jewish teachers, uh, it says not paying attention to Jewish myths. And this is also mentioned in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And a typical thing was a Jewish myth. What was that? They would take the Old Testament and mix it with some fictitious thing. And lo and behold, you've got this heretical doctrine. A modern-day example would be you take the Old Testament truth, oh, Genesis, chapter 1 and 3, and you mix it with humanistic, secular, atheistic evolution, and what do you have? You have theological evolution, which is a myth. The world didn't just poof into existence 13.7 billion years ago with the Big Bang out of nothing. That's a myth. That is not true. And that's what happens when you try to mix the Bible uh, with mythology. And that's what he says. It's mixing the Bible with something else. And so then it comes across as religious and spiritual, even biblical. And that's why it's so deceptive, because these people profess to believe in the Bible. Uh, So that's the first component in the nature of what they were teaching. The other one, verse 14, is also they were teaching the commandments of men. The commandments of men. In other words, they're just making up stuff. This is the traditions of men. This is what Jesus spoke against in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the phrase he kept saying? You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now, a lot of people make a mistake and think Jesus was quoting the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And Jesus is contrasting his truth with the Old Testament. He was not doing that. When Jesus refers to the Old Testament, he says, It stands written. And he says that because he believes in the authority of the Old Testament. He didn't say that in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, It has been said. Well, what's he talking about? That was Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, elders, who were Jews, who professed to believe in the Old Testament, professed to teach the Old Testament, who would take the Old Testament, take verses out of context, tweak it to their own personal liking or whatever, and they came up with what was called the traditions of the elders and the traditions of the men, of men, truths that were not or they weren't truths they were lies that can't be found in the old testament anywhere and that's the main false religion jesus confronted when he came to earth he confronted the traditions of men that was made up by the jews who compromised the old testament and tweaked it and that's why he said it has been said he wasn't undermining the bible at all it was the traditions of men these are rules of men here's one example go to mark chapter 7 here's a classic example so in your gospels matthew mark uh matthew mark chapter 7 where Jesus is confronting Jewish professing believers. In other words, they think they know God. They think they're stewards of the Scriptures. They are masters. They think of the Old Testament. They teach in the synagogues. They are called rabbi. But they misrepresent God's truth. They disregard true teaching of Scripture and they come up with what are called the traditions of men. Commandments. Man-made commandments. So Jesus is arguing publicly, verse 5, actually verse 1 of chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're going to duke it out with Jesus, verbally speaking. Verse 5, Pharisees and scribes asked him, they're trying to stump the chump, expose Jesus as a false teacher. Verse 9, Jesus said to them, you are experts, get this, at setting aside the commandment of God. You are experts at setting aside scripture, even though you profess to be Bible teachers. This is, a, this just reeks of sarcasm in the rebuke that Jesus is giving them. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. There it is. Supplanting the Word of God with man-made commandments and traditions. They were experts at it. Moses said, honor your parents, but boy, you don't even want to honor your parents. You made up a new law that you said people have to obey to literally undermine the honor of your parents. Verse 12, you no longer permit them to do anything for his father or his mother. Verse 13, thus, here's what you do. You invalidate the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. Wow. That is exactly what's going on here in uh, the island of Crete. Um, So it's using the Bible, it's man-made traditions, and also there's an emphasis on legalism. Do this and God will like you more. Do this and you'll get forgiven of sin. Don't do this and God will forgive some of your sin. Refrain from this and you'll become more spiritual. That's called legalism. When you take a man-made human tradition or a man-made law and you raise it up to the authority of Scripture and at the same time you put the authority of Scripture underneath your man-made law. That is legalism and it's been going on in the church for 2,000 years and legalism was the problem of the false doctrine here. We don't know the exact false teaching or false doctrine that was going on, but we know enough about the nature of it that it can be diagnosed. It was misusing the Bible and there was an emphasis on legalism. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this and you'll be more spiritual. And that is exactly what Paul said in Colossians 2. That is man-made religion. That is false. It accomplishes nothing. There's no efficacy whatsoever to any of those things, those man-made commandments. And like I said, it's been going on for 2,000 years and today... Uh, this is run amok all over the church, all over the world. Man-made religion supplanting true biblical truth. And here are some of its examples, and not just today, but also throughout 2,000 years of church history called sacramentalism. Do the sacraments and you'll get more spiritual. Sacerdotalism, same thing. Church rituals that will make you more spiritual. Ritualism traditionalism, externalism. See, it's a focus away from the heart and the attitude and the mind towards God. And here are some of its specific manifestations. This is human commandments, human tradition that people through the ages thought this will bring them closer to God, earn forgiveness, whatever. It's not true. None of this has any efficacy whatsoever of the saving power of God at all. Having holy water sprinkled on you. Newsflash, there's no such thing as holy water. There's drinking water and dirty water. That's it. <laughs> wearing a cross. Did you know that wearing a cross accomplishes nothing for you whatsoever? It doesn't ward off, uh, evil spirits or anything. It can look nice. I am not against wearing crosses. I like crosses. But there's nothing, there's nothing of spiritual value or power whatsoever. Uh, ha- owning a crucifix, chasing up Using a crucifix from personal experience does not ward off werewolves. It doesn't work. Or vampires. They attack anyway. Um, Other things that have absolutely no spiritual power whatsoever. Praying to statues of saints. Touching holy relics. Kissing the Bible. Kissing holy relics. Kissing holy religious relics. I got a video of a friend of mine from years ago who is of a religious order and made a video and I was watching it recently and there's a it's a big old, it's the front door of the church and there's St. Chrysostom or no, St. John of whatever and he's carved into the elm wood of the door and on the video he says, and if the patrons kiss the feet on the door, there's a special blessing for them. And I'm thinking, no, there isn't. What's there, you're just getting saliva on the wood? That is the only thing <laughs> that happens. Um, other things, lighting candles, zip, nada, no spiritual value whatsoever. Burning incense, no genuflecting and contorting your body does absolutely nothing spiritually. Um, doing this, you know, if you watch sports, then football and basketball all the time. Guy scores a touchdown, thank you Jesus, or I don't know who he's thanking. Thank you for that touchdown. Thank you for that tackle. Um, the sign of the cross, no spiritual value whatsoever. Counting beads, repeating mantras, facing a certain direction when you pray accomplishes nothing. It means nothing. Uh, having visions, fasting accomplishes no spiritual innate value whatsoever. It's not efficacious for earning the forgiveness of God or pleasing God or anything like that or covering your sin. Uh, Even getting baptized, which is a legitimate ordinance that God gave the church. Getting baptized in dunking water forgives none of your sin whatsoever. It doesn't bring you into a covenant with God. It doesn't. When you get baptized, your body's getting wet. That's what happens. And that's it. Uh, Taking communion... When you take communion, that doesn't forgive any of your sin. It doesn't make God like you more. It's not one step in earning your way to heaven. Although communion is one of the two ordinances that the Lord Jesus Christ ordained for His church to be obeyed, abstaining from meat doesn't make you more spiritual than the next guy who eats his pork and loves it with a lot of sauce. (laughs) Being single and abstaining doesn't make you more spiritual than the married couple who doesn't abstain whatsoever. Zilch. No efficacious saving spiritual power at all whatsoever. I could go on and on and on. Every one of those is an example of man-made spirituality and religion. that accomplishes nothing. There is only one thing that is efficacious, that has the power of God to deal with our sin and relationship with God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, Him crucified, Him risen. Amen? Amen? And that's it. It is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every false heresy for 2,000 years at its core attacks the gospel of Jesus Christ and his total sufficiency. You want forgiveness of sin. You want to be loved by God. You want to be secure in his family forever. Then you believe in one thing and that alone. It has nothing to do with you or me and what we can do. It is all of what God has done through Christ the perfect life of Jesus Christ, the God-man on the world in obedience to the Father who willingly died on the cross, crucified in fulfillment of prophecy, bore the wrath of Almighty Eternal God in His body on the cross, willingly buried in accordance with the Scripture, raised Himself from the dead, thus defying Satan, conquering death, conquering the world, conquering eternal hell on behalf of anyone who would believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord." And all it is is going to God, repenting. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You believe that, you pray that with full knowledge. In the words of Jesus, that man went home justified. That is the good news of true, pure, the only religion, biblical Christianity. That is the main thing that these false teachers were undermining. And that is why Paul is furious. And it needs to be exposed. Which takes us to point number three in the last one. Uh, Wherever there is false teaching, there's immoral thinking and immoral behavior that always follows. And that's the point of verse 15 and 16. These so-called religious teachers, they think they know it all. They're elitists. They're misleading people. They have the wrong motives. They twist the scriptures. And with their elitist attitude, they think that they've got their little checklist of all the holy things you're supposed to do that nobody else is doing? We abstain from this. And we wash before we do this. And we don't do that. And we do this. And we do that, And they got their little checklist. And everybody else that doesn't do this is defiled and unclean. And Paul says the irony is, uh, no, abstaining from... there's Pork is not unclean. Pork is not unclean. The only thing that's unclean are these false teachers. That's really what's unclean. And that's this point in 15 and 16. So let's look at the third point. Uh, avoid... The conduct of false teachers, which usually is manifest in religious legalism, man-made religion, man-made do's and don'ts. Boy, when somebody starts saying, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. Oh, by the way, another one I didn't say was, uh, clothes that you wear, or vestments that you wear, or, uh, which bring about spirituality. That's also legalism. Verse 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure. To the, literally, to the saved. To those who are truly born again, all things are pure. What does that mean? Uh, to those who are truly Christians with proper understanding, th- an example would be meat. Pork is not defiled. It is not unclean before God. Because apparently these Jewish teachers were telling certain people to abstain from certain foods. So pork is not defiled. It is not poisoned. It's, it's clean. God created it so it could be eaten if taken with thanksgiving, according to Timothy. So to Christians with the right perspective, they know that there's nothing that God has created that is filthy, defiled, inherently in and of itself especially things God designed for us to use, like uh, food to be consumed and sexual intimacy, which is a gift from God in marriage. These are not dirty. They are not defiled. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. So people, you know, that book that came, a best-selling book that came out, I don't know, five, six years ago about the maker's diet? And I, I read it. And the guy claimed to be a Christian, but in there he's basically using the Levitical laws, telling you as a Christian you can't be eating this meat and that meat and this meat and that. And if you do, you're not uh, being totally obedient as a Christian, and it'll affect your life. And I'm thinking, no, this is, this is not true. And that is exactly what this is talking about. Don't be misled by that. You can be, you can abstain from certain things, but it's not because it's a spiritual issue. It can be a preference or maybe a practical thing. Paul's talking on a spiritual level here. To the pure, all things are pure. Go ahead and eat your pork. Um, If you're married, don't abstain. But to those who are defiled, these false teachers, people who are not saved, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. They make false distinctions. This meat is dirty. This meat's defiled. That activity is defiled. You can't do that. You can't play cards on Sunday from the devil. That's an example of a man-made rule where they'd say that is defiled. But they are wrong. Nothing is uh, pure to these people because the problem is their mind and their conscience is defiled. They're not saved and their thinking is warped and they're making wrong diagnoses and wrong. Uh, they're giving the wrong advice based on wrong perspective. They don't understand truth. And the problem is they're the ones that are defiled to the core because they haven't been saved again. They can't even see their greatest need. In verse 16, and it comes out in their lifestyle. They profess to know God. This was true, especially of the early Jewish people who believed they were the ones that had a corner on the truth, especially against Gentiles of any sort. They profess to know God. They are God's elite. They are God's privileged. They are God's elect. But by their deeds, they deny God because of their behavior, which is, if you really knew it, their thinking and their behavior. It is detestable. It is disobedient. And it is worthless for any good deed whatsoever. That is the mark of a false teacher, and they deserve a red alert and a five-star warning because of the damage that they can do in the church. So with that, we're going to continue on in the book of Titus, and Paul is going to actually continue. Now he's going to pick up the theme of the last phrase at the end of verse 16, good deeds. And much of the rest of the next two chapters about the book of Titus is what true good deeds are and how Christians can manifest those in their life through salvation, with the help of the Holy Spirit. And with that, let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together and the opportunity to, again, study your word. And Father, I thank you for preserving Scripture for us, that we can trust it. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is our ongoing teacher. And God, I pray that you would... Use the Holy Spirit in every Christian's life that is in this room today to remind them of these truths and also, Lord, to help us think practically about how we can apply these truths that we've heard today, especially relative to the Gospel. What a great reminder that we can't do anything or refrain from anything to earn your love and forgiveness. Thank you for the reminder that your love and forgiveness comes only through the work of Jesus Christ crucified and risen lord jesus we thank you so much for that awesome truth we thank you for the blessing of ongoing forgiveness of sin of all the gifts and blessings that come through knowing you and god lord jesus may you receive all the glory that you are due and that your glory wouldn't be shrouded by anything false teaching wrong thinking on our part sinful behavior so we exalt you lord jesus Thank you for this blessed truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.